Well, good morning, Westside. We are glad that you're here this morning on this beautiful fall morning as we're continuing in our sermon series through the book of Acts. And just really quickly, um, we've been asking you guys to sort of send in some questions through this sermon series. Um, we have a podcast that launches and goes live on Wednesdays, and um, the book of Acts raises a number of questions as you're studying the book of the Bible, and we don't have enough time to sort of dive into everything on a Sunday, so we want you to send in questions. Well, we found out this week um, through the people that sort of handle our media and stuff like that, our emails actually weren't coming to us. They were going somewhere out on the internet. So there's some guy in Europe somewhere getting these questions about like speaking in tongues. And he's like, what in the world? Um, and so we apologize. If you've been sending in questions and you felt like they haven't been answered, we're so sorry. Please send those in. And we love answering those questions um, on that podcast as it allows you in the middle of the week to continue to sort of digest and dive deeper um, into to the sermon. And so if it's your first time here, welcome. We're glad you're here. Um, you can catch up to all of these sermons um, on our website. But just to give you a little bit of review, where we are now in Acts chapter 4 um, is this. We have learned that Jesus charged his disciples to continue the ministry that he started. Acts is a sequel to the gospel of Luke. Luke, who was a physician, wrote a biography of Jesus and then he wrote a history of the early church. And so the disciples and the apostles are continuing in Jesus' ministry. And the reason why that's important to know is, is that they are not starting something new. But rather they are continuing in the work that Jesus has already established himself. The second thing is this, is that the disciples have waited and received the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. That was Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. And we spent a couple of weeks on that chapter because it is a big deal. It is a big deal now that the Spirit of God does not dwell in the Holy of Holies and separated by some great curtain. And you have to go through all of these ceremonies in order to access God. But now, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, this is going to be a good part for an amen. You ready for this? You're in the sermon now. Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, now the Spirit of God dwells inside of us. This is good news. And we see them doing all kinds of things. We said that the church now becomes a movement with miracles. Last week, we did an in-depth study on miracles, on signs. What does this mean? What does this establish? And we said that miracles are not the end game, but rather that miracles serve as a purpose to establish the gospel message, that the miracle is not the point, but the point of a miracle is to point to Jesus. And so we simply said this, that Acts 3 was the first recorded miracle by the apostles. Now, it's really, really important. Acts 4 continues in the storyline of Acts chapter 3. And if Acts 3 was the first recorded miracle, then Acts chapter 4 is the first recorded opposition to the early church. You see, what we're going to see in Acts is, is that there's segments and chunks that Luke is writing. And Acts chapter 4 begins now the opposition, the attack, or the resistance 
against the church. And it keeps climaxing and climaxing until Acts chapter 8 and 9 when we meet this guy named Saul who is ravaging the church. So over the next couple of weeks, we're now going to begin to see and study and learn about why there is a resistance to this message, to the gospel message. Why is there a resistance to this man named Jesus? Why is there a resistance against the early church? And you see, Acts chapter 4 um, would have been, a, I mean, a surprise to the apostles for sure. They would have been, you know, like, oh, goodness, here it is. Here's the resistance. But they would have been prepared for that. And the reason why is because Jesus taught and prepared his disciples for this very thing. And so here's a few scriptures for you. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says this, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Okay, all right, all right. That doesn't seem like so positive. And um, if we have any farmers or anybody here, we know um, this is not a good sign, okay? Um, these two things do not go together. But Jesus says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And then Jesus goes on and says, when they deliver you over, don't be anxious how you are to speak or what you're even supposed to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speaks, but it is the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. We just read those verses together. And literally, we see Acts chapter 4 is a detailed case study of Matthew chapter 10. Jesus is preparing his disciples and saying, listen, there is going to be a resistance and opposition to this message. So what does that look like? I mean, Jesus said that they're going to drag you before governors. It's going to be legal. There even is going to be physical violence. They're going to flog you there in the synagogues. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon... He speaks this to his followers and says this, Blessed are those who, persecute, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now, just look at these two verses. Jesus tells us the two categories that this persecution or opposition is going to happen. It's going to be physical because there's going to be persecution that's going to happen. And, and, and he already said that they're going to flog you or do those things. So, so it's not just going to be physical, but it's also going to be verbal. And he says, and they utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now, this word persecute is a big deal in the New Testament, and we see it taught over and over and over again. And I think it's helpful to define it. 
Because oftentimes, we just throw words out without meaning, okay? So, you know, love, man. I, I love Taco Bell, love our dog, and love my family, okay? I, hopefully not in that order, okay, right? But we just throw words out and don't even know what they mean. And sometimes, whether we... Um, Uh, encounter some resistance or opposition. Maybe you post something on social media and somebody comments and they disagree with you and then we're very quick to go, oh, I'm I'm being persecuted, right? Okay, well, hold on. Okay, hold on. Um, The word persecution uh, means this. It's, It's to pursue, to systematically oppress, harass, and harm a person or group of people based on their race, religion, or political beliefs. That is what this word persecution means. And Jesus says it's going to be physical and it's going to be verbal. Hey, listen, um, just all cards on the table. Um, I believe that we live in the greatest place that you could live on planet Earth. doesn't mean that it's perfect, but I believe that it's a good place. But our brothers and sisters in Africa, in China, in North Korea and other places, today when they gather, they gather with an awareness and understanding that at any moment something can threaten their lives because they are gathering in the name of Jesus. I do believe that we are in a unique time in history. Now, I'm not one of those doom and gloom guys who has charts and red strings and ooh and like all of this stuff and like everything like that, okay? But here's what I do believe. Um, The Bible makes it very clear that closer and closer in the last days upon the return of Jesus Christ, it will become more and more difficult to live as a Christian in this world. Because the world hates the message of Jesus. But I do believe, I do firmly believe that we are entering and have been in a season in our nation where the verbal and the relational hostility and attack and persecution is happening more and more every single day for Christians. You don't think so? Why don't you post Romans chapter 1 on your Facebook feed and see how that goes for you for the rest of the afternoon, okay? You might want to turn off your notifications because it'll be pretty busy, right? There is something that is happening. And so, if that's true for them, then we need to ask this question. What does that look like for us today? What does that look like for us Because some of us are under the illusion and think, well, you know, those are Bible days and things were, of course, intense back then. And there tends to be a disconnect from then to now. But um, this this is one of my favorite verses that I've never found in Hobby Lobby. I've just never seen this one. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed... All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It is a firm promise. I believe the reason why Jesus taught this so much is because he was clarifying the expectations for his followers. That that there would just never be a moment where you were just shocked and went, well, I didn't sign up for this or, or I didn't expect this to happen. No, no, no. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life, if you desire to love Jesus and to follow Jesus in this world, you will be persecuted. It will happen. 
whether it be verbal, whether it be relational, or God forbid, whether it be physical. But also another verse is this in John chapter 15. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Hey, listen, sometimes we forget. Please don't miss this. Look up here. Sometimes we forget. We worship a man that was murdered, that was nailed to a cross. But then we think and have an expectation of living a comfortable life. Listen, Christianity is not a comfortable life. It is a life, I believe, filled with deep peace that surpasses all understanding. But that peace is not the absence of resistance, but rather the presence of peace amidst the resistance. So, what is the good news? What is the thrust? Well, in Acts chapter 4, by far the theme that we see is boldness. We see that these believers are bold, that this is the time where they meet resistance, but they stand up to the challenge. And we're going to see this over and over and over again. But we've already read the promise. Jesus says that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. We see the very words when it's Peter's time. He, Peter is standing in a court of law. Peter's life is on the line. And the phrase says, and Peter standing filled with the Holy Spirit. So the big idea in the thesis for us today is this. The Holy Spirit provides boldness to proclaim the gospel in the face of of persecution. This is where we get our power from. Listen to me. This is not something we have said this over and over and over again through the book of Acts. The Christian life is a supernatural life. It's not just like I'm kind of trying on my own. I'm trying hard. I'm doing this a little bit. And then when I begin to fail or stumble or falter, then that's when the Holy Spirit comes. No, 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 no. Every single day we need the power of the Holy Spirit. So as we look in these verses, I want to ask a couple questions. The first question is this. What is offensive about the gospel? I mean, let's pause and, and reflect on this, okay? Because we are seeing some serious opposition in the book of Acts. And we are seeing even more opposition as the New Testament continues to be written. Listen, every disciple, every apostle that directly was commissioned by Jesus Christ was murdered or martyred for their faith. There is an intense hostility against the gospel message. But have you ever stopped and asked why? Like, like why, were, why were people so mad at Jesus? I mean, he fed 5,000 people with a kid's Lunchable. Like, why are people so mad at that? And, and especially in Acts chapter 4, as it's the continuation of the miracle of the lame man. I mean, this man was lame from birth, and then they do a miracle, and now this man can use his legs, and he's healed. Like, who's mad about that? Like, please raise your hand if um, the blind guy gets healed and you're just super mad about that, okay? Like, 
I pause and I ask this question, what is so offensive about the gospel? If it's good news, why does the world hate this? Well, I think we see it here in these verses. And, and there's a reason why. There's a phrase that keeps popping up. If you notice in the text, look in verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came to them. Look at verse 2. Greatly annoyed, here it is, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus' resurrection. And then again, when you look there in verse 18. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach. Listen, are you catching the theme? Nobody has a problem with feeding the hungry. Nobody has a problem with healing the sick. The moment that you say, we feed you in the name of, and we heal you in the name of Jesus Christ, then they throw down the flag and they say, uh-uh, can't do that. Listen, here's, here's the sentence. The world loves the good works of Christianity, but the world hates the good news of Christianity. Um, the world loves the good works of Christianity. Ever notice the name of almost every single hospital, major hospital in a city? Saint, such and such, this, that. Never seen a hospital named after Charles Darwin. Okay, some of you guys will get that over lunch. But never, n never seen that, okay? Never seen any, an, an orphanage named after a famous atheist. Never seen that. You know why? Because the world loves the good works of the church. They love that. But the moment when you declare and say a man by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth lived, died, and rose again and was God in the flesh, then there is a problem. I'll never forget the first time I encountered this. We were in St. Louis and I was a student pastor and our church literally shared a parking lot with one of the largest middle schools in the entire state of Missouri. I mean, it's in top three. It's just incredible. It's all that stuff. We did a ton of service projects. We would do after-school tutoring. Kids would come over and use the church. I was a lunch buddy. We did all kinds of things, and the school loved it. They had me come over one day um, at Lindbergh. I probably shouldn't say that, but it was Lindbergh, okay? Um, right there on Tesson Ferry in 21, sorry, all right? Um, Lindbergh Middle School. And they had me come over into the school, and they had volunteers, and we were doing stuff. And they had me speak to the kids about pos uh, like being positive and not bullying and doing stuff like that. And I'll never forget, we were there in the classroom. There was a couple of students that were in our youth group, and the principal was there. And the moment I got there, the principal was just kind of like shadowing me and following me and like not letting me be on my own and I was like I get it I look weird the tattoo like I understand that's totally okay right but then right before I get up to talk he leaned over and goes hey um uh just leave that Jesus stuff out today okay I was like, checkmate, I got your number, buddy, all right? So we were talking about how to love each other, and I even had this cool phrase, um, if you want to be my homie, you got to get to know me. Like, it was really good, okay? I thought it was really good. You're, I mean, you're, that's going to be in your mind all day, right? Forget the big idea of the sermon, but if you want to know me, you got to get to my homie. And, um, and then I said, you know, we should love each other, and we should do all of that. And I said, um, you know, we should love each other um, because there was this guy there was this guy um, who's recorded in history. 
Um, and um, he actually taught that we should love each other and lay down our life. And Jesus, and I'll never forget, I just made dead eye contact with him when I said it, and he was in the back of the room. And I said, and Jesus taught that we should love each other. And after we left, he didn't tell me good job or like anything like that. There, there was nothing serious that took place, but I could tell that he drew the line in the sand, and he was all for being positive and having smiles. But don't say the name Jesus, because that's divisive. Why? Why is that divisive? Well, I'm glad you asked. I think there's three things that we see when Peter speaks as to why the gospel is offensive. And it's right here in these verses. The first one is this. The gospel is offensive because the gospel says we are sinners. Um, If you look there in verse 10, Peter says, Let it be known to all of you. Let it be known to all of you and to tell all the people of Israel... That by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I love this. This is like, it's like in parentheses, there's a comma there. And and Peter's not letting them forget. And by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, by the way, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, Peter is always constantly bringing up the cross of Christ. Constantly bringing up the crucifixion. Constantly doing that. The Apostle Paul would say to the church in Corinth, while I was with you, I wanted to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And when you say crucifixion, and when you say that Jesus was crucified, it begs the question, why? Why was Jesus crucified? To which that then opens the door for us to say, because Jesus, listen, if you've ever want to summarize the gospel, we've taught it this way here at Westside. Very simply, the gospel is this, Jesus in my place. That's the gospel. Jesus in my place. Jesus's death was one of substitution, which then begs another question. Why did Jesus have to die in my place? And then the scriptures would teach that Psalm 51.5, For I was born in iniquity and sin. Colossians chapter 1, For we are hostile in mind. And Ephesians chapter 2, For we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That there is a brokenness that lies inside of us that the world does not like to hear. But I would beg this. I believe that that's actually good news because then it provides the answer. Everybody, when, it turns, when, when we turn on the news, says, man, there is something wrong in the world. Everybody agrees that there's something wrong in the world. But nobody wants to admit that that also lives inside of them. Why is the gospel offensive? Because the gospel says that we're sinners. The second thing is this. The gospel is offensive because the gospel demands repentance. Look at verse 12. And there is salvation... In no one else, actually jump up to verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. The builders, which has become now the corner stone. So Peter is speaking really quickly in some ancient language. And I've got to do a little bit of work here for us. 
Um, back then, when they're building something, they didn't have their iPhone that they could lay down as a level to kind of go, oh, wow. Or they had green lasers that shot across so they could keep the house straight. And as they're building and doing all of that, actually, um, a lot of things weren't built with wood back then. That was a commodity. A lot of things were actually built out of stone. And so even today, if you go and tour ancient cities, you'll see something that looks like this in a lot of the buildings. Um, Actually, a lot of old churches still have something like this. And what this is, is a cornerstone that is there in the corner of the building that is built and shaped perfectly. And as they are building that structure, they constantly keep referring to the cornerstone. Everything in that building pulls from the cornerstone. If you're off on the roof, it's because you were off on the cornerstone. You need to go back to the cornerstone. And what Peter is saying, what Peter is saying, is that the foundation of humanity, the very foundation of the cosmos, the foundation of the universe is Jesus Christ. He is the foundation, the standard by which everything else gets pulled from. So if everything is off and everything is broken in the world, that means we are not referencing the true cornerstone. So then what is the answer? Um, Maybe this will help. So I'm, I'm the youngest of four boys in our family, John, Josh, Joseph, um, and then me. And my older brother, John, is, is actually a lot older than me. He's like almost 15 years older than me. And so he was very much so like a father figure in my life. But John was in construction um, his whole life, even summer high school jobs and all of that stuff. And he's actually a contractor um, up in Columbia and some parts of Oklahoma as well. And he builds these houses and then lives in them for a real short period of time and then sells it and then builds another house and does that. It's just the life of a contractor. And he called me one day and he was just so frustrated. And I said, what is going on, man? And he said, bro, you are not going to believe this. So we're building our house and I wasn't able to be there when they were pouring the foundation. So I show up early on that following Monday And I am livid. And I said, why? He said, because all of the plumbing, all of the fixtures, all of the electric, and all of that were all in the wrong spots in the house. And I said, bro, they poured the foundation already. He goes, exactly. I said, so what did you do? He said, I told him to bust it up. So he sends me this picture that this is his house. I mean, you got rebar hanging everywhere, and that is the foundation, and that's my brother, who I am much taller and more handsome than, but anyway, if he's listening to this, um, (laughs) um, that's his foundation, and they literally had to bust all of that up, get all of that out, and redo everything. You say, Jason, why are you saying that? Because please don't miss this. When he sent me this picture, the Lord just dropped a message in my mailbox. This is repentance. This is repentance. The reason why it's so offensive is because the gospel message comes along and says, you can't build your life on your career. The gospel message comes along, mama, and says, you can't build your life on those babies. 
You can't build your life on your last name. You can't build your life on anything else. Nothing else can support the weight of your identity and your life other than the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And what repentance is, is turning from our sin and busting up that foundation that we once laid our life on and pouring a new foundation that is poured by grace in Jesus Christ. And that is offensive to people who have put so much time and so much effort. I hear it all the time when we work with people who are struggling with addictions. Because oftentimes someone who's struggling with addiction will say, inevitably, um, first five minutes in the conversation, hey, listen, real quick, um, you know, I'm just struggling with this, and it's alcohol, and it's this or that or the other, but I don't need to go anywhere. I don't, I don't need to go anywhere. I, I mean, like, I can, can you get me a book? Do you have a book? Or something like that. I mean, because I don't need to. I would like to just improve my life, not bust up the entire foundation. But the reality is, is that the gospel calls us to only build on Jesus Christ. The gospel is offensive because it says we're sinners. The gospel demands repentance. And then the last thing is this. The gospel is offensive because the gospel says that only Jesus can save us. That's it. That is the nail in the proverbial coffin. Look at verse 12, man. This is one for your kids to memorize. This is it. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is one name under heaven. There is one name that holds the power to save. There is one name that has stared down death, sin, and the grave and defeated it. And that name is Jesus Christ. There is no other name. There is no other name. Um, just this past Friday, we went to the home football game. And Popper Bluff was playing Kennett, which is like my old alma mater. And so I was a little emotionally conflicted, okay, during the game. But the Mules won. It was an awesome game. It was incredible. And my kids kept going, we're cheering for Popper Bluff. And I was like, oh, you know, it just, just got to me. Um, but one of our families and one of our students, um, Macy Winkler, got to pray for the opening game. And so we were there, and her mom came up and goes, Macy gets to pray and do the opening prayer. And we were like, yes, this is just super cool. And so, um, you know, they give the announcement, stand up and do all that. And Macy starts to pray. It's a beautiful prayer. Just her beautiful, sweet voice. And it was just, it was awesome. But as the pastor, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Because I'm like, this is great. This is a beautiful. This is a good prayer, right? And then at the very end, Macy goes, and God we ask all of these things in the one and only mighty name of Jesus Christ. And I went, yes and amen. <laughs> yes and amen. Because listen to me, no, all religions are not the same. No, they are not the same. All religions by very definition say um, as a proverb that life is sort of this mountain. And at the top of the mountain, there is the creator, there is an existing one, there is God. And by your good works and by your prayers and by this, maybe in your life, you can work your way up that mountain and in the end find God. But what Christianity says is that God has come climb down the mountain to find you. 
That is what separates it from everything else in the world. And that is what becomes offensive. And primarily when you talk to anybody who has actually studied and given a um, logical argument against Christianity um, in their own belief, because I don't believe there is a logical argument actually against it, but one of the major claims of offense is the exclusivity of Christ. That only through Jesus, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes through the Father except through me. But really quickly, when you have those conversations with people, and you ask them, well, what is your definition? And by your standard, how do people, quote unquote, either make it to heaven or get the very love of God? And by very definition, they'll always say, I think if you live a good life, you can do that. Well, there's a number of errors in that argument. And by the way, I would say this. You are just as exclusive because you are saying the people who live bad are doomed and can't make it in. So the very definition of that is by what standard? And really quickly, I need to say two things. The first one is this. The gospel isn't shocking because Jesus is the only way to God. That's always, always the primary sort of shock value. But I think you're looking at it wrong. If there is a God and that God is holy and that God is good and that God is powerful and that God has created everything and we are broken sinners and there is something fundamentally wrong with humanity, what's shocking is not that there is only one way to God. What is shocking is that there is even a way to God. That's what's shocking so, so change your very perspective. It's not that there is just one way. What is shocking is that this God would even provide a way. A way. And then the second thing is this. Um, some of you who are listening to this are like, hey man, we got to stand bold and we got to stand for the truth and the Bible and the... Okay, really quickly, calm down. Okay, calm down. Um, primarily, a lot of your friends would say that you're mean. They're just really afraid to tell you that, okay? Um, the gospel is offensive enough, so Christians shouldn't be. Do you understand that distinction? The gospel is offensive enough, so by our tone and by our speech and by the way we live our life, we should not be. What I don't see in the book of Acts is these guys running around picking fights, what I do see is in the moment that they are called upon, they stand and depend on the Holy Spirit for that boldness. So please listen to me. When it comes to our social media, when it comes to the way you act at work, when it comes to your tone and your speech, I'll never forget another pastor saying this, you are the only Bible that some people will ever read. And so the message is offensive. The messengers shouldn't be. So, those are three reasons why the gospel is offensive. The second thing is this. What does Holy Spirit boldness look like? And really quickly, I just want to run through these. What does Holy Spirit boldness look like? Well, the first thing is this. An urgency to share the message. Peter says this. He says, there is no other heaven given by we must be saved. 
And then in verse 19, he says these words. They, they threaten them, and then Peter says this, but Peter and John answer them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Listen, that by very definition is civil disobedience. They are saying, the, the government of the day is saying, you can't do that. And they, by a clear conscience, are saying, we must submit to God. We cannot submit to you on this issue. There is an urgency in their bones to share this message. The second thing is this, a clarity of the message. I mean, every time Peter stands up and talks, or John, or anybody, they know what they're talking about. The message is very clear. It's not all of this crazy, political, this, that, or the other. It is there is a God who created everything that you see. This God has revealed himself in the Old Testament through the prophets, but now he has come down in the person of Jesus Christ who lived, died, and rose again, and he has now given the promise of his Holy Spirit for anybody who would repent of their sins and place their trust in him. It is clear and to the point. It is not a distraction. And then the third thing is this, a sincerity for the listeners. I literally see this often, that they love who they are talking to. And I think many of us Christians could learn from this, that rather than win a debate or beat a person, how about our heart break for them? How about they hear the love and sincerity in our tone and rather the goal be an established relationship than winning an argument. They're sincere. And then the last thing, I love this, an intimacy with Jesus. Look at verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Listen, they didn't have their credentials. They weren't a rabbi. They didn't get chosen by a rabbi. They didn't have any of that stuff. They were blue-collar fishermen, the equivalent of just working at a factory, a good, hard labor job that the rest of society would say, well, you don't really have the credentials to do that. And so everybody else is astonished. And Peter and John are showing this boldness because they have lived and been with Jesus. Please listen to me. If you ever think that you can step out and stand up for Jesus, you better first have been with Jesus. And I see as a byproduct of being and having a relationship with Jesus is humble boldness. Humble boldness. So we see the Holy Spirit provides this boldness to proclaim the gospel in the face of persecution. In closing, um, there's one question that has rocked me all week, and I've wrestled with it, and I don't really have a piece about it, so I'm just going to lay it before you today. The question is this. Why don't we have this type of boldness? Why don't I see this in my own life? Not just first us as a church corporately, 
Remember we said that, that none of this will happen corporately if it's not first applied individually. And so I've asked myself, if my life was on the line, if my job was on the line, reputation, friendships, status, all of these things, the type of boldness that these men and women have, why don't I see this in my life? And, and I jotted down just maybe a few reasons. I was like, um, fear of man, maybe. You know, you know, I mean, maybe we care more about what people think than God thinks. I think that's a little bit true. How about this? Are we too comfortable? You know, that's hard. Um, I like the path of least resistance, so I'm going to go here. Or what if it's just like a lack of biblical knowledge? You know, I don't know what I'm going to say. If I, listen, I think all of those are an answer, maybe, to why we don't see that type of boldness. But then as I wrestled with it all week, I just felt like the Spirit just drop a message in my mailbox and say this. Um, I don't think that we necessarily see the boldness that the early church had. Because we don't have the confidence in the gospel like the early church had. I mean, these guys, these guys really believe that Jesus rose. They were like, you can do whatever you want, but we cannot help but speak of what we've seen and heard, and I'm a witness to this. My life has been changed on this. You can't stop. You cannot shut me up because this has changed my life. And do we believe? Do you really believe that message? Because therein lies the key. I think when we really know that right now as we sing, as we were just singing moments ago and praying to God that there really is Jesus, really is Jesus sitting on a throne in heaven and all of the angels and all of the seraphim fly around him and it says that they cover their face with their wings because he's so holy and he's so magnificent that angels can't even look upon him. That as we sing that Jesus is there and he hears us. And that when we pray that there is a God in heaven who hears your prayers. Do we really believe that? Because then what would our life look like? What would the conversations be? How would it change? We would go from being anxious and fearful of praying about our prodigal child or praying about that cancer or praying about that relational conflict with a little bit of worry, not knowing how it's going to turn out. And we would cross over into the boldness of grace as we approach that throne and know that there is a God in heaven who hears us. That no matter what happens, I know that Jesus is alive today. In closing, J.B. Phillips was a New Testament translator, and in his preface for the book of Acts, he says these words. Please listen to this. It is impossible to spend several months in close study of the remarkable short book, conventionally known as the Acts of the Apostles, without being profoundly stirred and, to be honest, disturbed 
The reader is stirred because he or she is seeing Christianity as the real thing in action for the first time in human history. The newborn church, as vulnerable as any human child, having neither money nor influence nor power in an ordinary sense, is setting forth joyfully and courageously to win the pagan world for God through Christ. Yet we cannot help feeling disturbed as well as moved for this surely is the church as it was meant to be. It is vigorous and flexible for these are the days before it ever became fat and short of breath through prosperity and muscle bound over organization. These men did not make acts of faith. They believed and they did not, quote, say their prayers. They prayed and the place was shaken. They did not hold conferences on psychosomatic medicine. They simply healed the sick. No one can read this book without being convinced that there is someone here at work besides mere human beings. Perhaps because in the very simplicity perhaps because of the readiness to believe, to obey, to give, to suffer, and if need be, die, the Spirit of God found what surely He must always be seeking, a fellowship of men and women so united in love and faith that He can work in them and through them with the minimum of any hindrance. Consequently, it is a matter of sober historical fact that never before has any small body of ordinary people so moved the world that their enemies could say with tears of rage in their eyes that these men have turned the world upside down. This is the church. This is a group of ordinary people filled with the Spirit of God standing up for boldness because they really believe there really is a Jesus. So questions in application are very simply this today. If I'm not experiencing the same opposition as the early church, am I speaking the same message as the early church? Listen, we are God's messengers. We are not God's editors. So if we are not seeing the opposition, I must ask myself, are we speaking the same message? The second thing is this. Do I really believe that the Holy Spirit will provide the boldness I need to share the good news of Jesus? You ready for this? Do you know what the answer to that prayer is? Doing it. So the last one is this. Ask God for an opportunity to be bold this week. I dare you. I dare you, before you come and partake in communion, bow your head and say, God, give me an opportunity to be bold this week and watch what God does in your life. Heavenly Father, we come before you today so grateful for your good news. God, there are elements of this that are difficult for us. God, as humans, we will naturally take the path of least resistance. But what we see was so powerful about the early church, what was so powerful about those men and women is that they didn't worry about that. They simply focused on you, Jesus, on loving you. And whatever else happened, happened. So God, as we reflect upon these questions today, and as we come and partake in your body broken and your blood shed, 
may you move us. Convict those who need convicting. Comfort those who need comforting. And compel us all forward to advance your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We pray all of these things in the mighty and in the resurrected name. In the name above every name. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you stand with